thinking about data flow at at a small company is something I think everyone should be should be doing because it really answers that core question: How am I bringing my product to market? How am I managing that life cycle? How am I sharing information with all the key people? They're probably having a lot of external partners, but this makes sure they control their data and it's not sitting on one CROs here, a product development company here, a regulatory consultant over there. They know where all their data is at one time, and all the all the data and documents are still together in one place. It's unified and it, they can still connect with all those different those different partners. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at Archimedic. My guest this episode is Seth Goldenberg, Vice President of Medical Device and Diagnostics at Viva Systems. Seth and I chatted recently about cloud data systems, their role in MedTech, and how they can actually help innovators bring products to market faster and manage them better throughout their life cycle. One thing I'll note before we get started, this episode sounds a little bit different from our others because Seth and I weren't able to meet in person for this conversation, but it should still be quite easy to hear. Let's jump in. Hey Seth, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Nice to have you on MedTech Mindset. Yeah, no, happy to be here and look forward to the conversation. Great. So, um, you know, I've, I've just introduced you, obviously, to our to our listeners, or at least I will have when we uh, when we air this podcast. But, um, you know, uh, your career, it seems to me anyway, has followed a pretty interesting, though maybe unexpected path. Um, at least when when we heard that you had had um, you know taken taken your current position in Viva, we thought, well, that's a little out of out of um, step with where we would have maybe expected you to go next. Um, but I'm sure you have a good reason for it. But let me just ask you, so I think you you studied biomedical engineering and then did a PhD in structural bio- biology and pharmacology. Um, you've worked as a regulatory chemist at the FDA and then um, were at NAMSA in both regulatory and product development roles. So um, that's quite a quite a variety of experiences. Uh, and then um, and then that led you to uh, to your position now. Um, as a VP at an enterprise software provider, so can you, can you kind of explain explain to us, um, you know, how you got how you followed that path and and what led you to your current role? No, those are uh, those are good questions. And yeah, it, the while the positions and the companies have changed, you know, the way that I've looked at my career has really been around trying to solve some problems, right? So early in my career is really these hard science problems around basic you know, mechanism of actions, you know, structure function of, at the molecular level, looking at the pharmacology. You know, doing X-ray crystallography and building you know, crystal structures of large protein complexes to dive into you know how these how how our cells are working right where these core problems. Then right. from there I went into you know, drug discovery in the same field right so it's continuing that that same problem set. How do we now use the, this information to develop new therapies? So as a senior scientist at a drug startup, I learned a lot about that. Started to get exposed to regulatory questions, the regulatory challenges that are in front of any product or drug that, that wants to come to the marketplace and started to get interested in the regulatory side. And so I spent the first you know, 10 years of my, let's say, you know, career as a student and then as a scientist in the field. And then I started to look at regulatory problems. And so to answer that, I figured I should go to the place that makes the regulations, right? <laughs> and, is the, and is there to protect and promote public, public health so I took a position at the FDA. So began to learn more about that, get understand the, the regulatory side. 
from that space too, I also learned about some of the challenges from the regulatory side on the global, on the, at a global scale and started a consulting company in, in China. Again, still answering these regulatory questions. So while the positions change, I, I look at it as you know science, then kind of regulatory. And that's how I went into NAMSA, continuing to answer those regulatory questions, global regulatory, which is what my role was at NAMSA. Once I got to know NAMSA a little bit more though, the breadth and depth of services that they had from you know, quality regulatory consulting, clinical trials, lab testing, biocompatibility testing, there seemed to be you know, a gap in the marketplace for expertise that was linked not only to you know, how these individual silos, let's call them, right, these individual functions, but when and how to use these different functions in product lifecycle. So from there, I created, I, that's where I started the product development group at NAMSA and began, and that was kind of the shift from these, the regulatory part of my career into how do I use this science background, this regulatory background to improve how products are brought to market, the product life cycle. So while, and that's how I got to know Viva at the time too. Uh, Viva was the ETMF provider that, that NAMSA used and, and, and still uses. They were one of the, our, the first device customers that, that Viva had. And when my, you know, as I continued to understand all the challenges that a company has in bringing a product to market, the one of them in my experiences there was really around data, right? And how do we share this information across these different processes? So the groups that I put together at NAMSA, you know, these teams of regulatory experts, quality experts, product engineers, reimbursement consultants, clinical trial experts, physicians, bringing all those people together it very quickly became a problem to share information across the, across these groups. And I would actually had two people who's all they did was just make sure everyone knew what everyone else was doing and the timelines were being met. And it just seemed very you know, inefficient. So when the opportunity came up to work at, at Viva and work, work on, on that technology side of the, the product, it, it, to me, you know, Paul, it might seem from the outside a little bit, uh, yeah, like jumping around to me, it was still that core problem about product life cycle. How do, how do we manage that processes? What, what are the technologies that we can bring to bear to improve it and really help companies you know, run and manage their, their businesses better? So I've been in a bunch of different places, but I still, when I look at my career, I, I would say it's been answering three problems. First, it was hard science and I was kind of figuring out some regulatory problems. And now for the last part of my career, and until what I'm currently doing, it's that product lifecycle management, bringing products to market and ways to do that. So, um, you know, obviously you then have had, you know, quite a bit of experience both with drugs and devices or devices and diagnostics. Being that you've been inside the FDA, outside the FDA, you know, in consulting and, and in industry, what are the broad trends that you see across how devices and, and drugs are maybe regulated you know, how similar uh, and different are those are those trends, like in terms of the regulatory environment and how they, what impact they may have on product life cycles? Yeah, so, you know, the, the regulatory environment, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, safety and effectiveness, right? Those are the core questions of any global regulator. The challenges or differences start showing up really fast, though, between drugs and devices, and it's that product life cycle is a key, key part of that. When you bring a drug to market, you're bringing that drug to market seven to 10 years, you also are then going to have a series of exclusivity and that drug is not going to change. The drug is the drug. It might, you might put it in a, go from a syringe into an auto injector, right? To improve compliance, you know, do, do some of these changes, change dosage, but usually that's it. 
Whereas the device lifecycle, even if you do, you know, a PMA, let's say, you might be innovating on that PMA pretty quickly. You might be making changes a year, you know, two years from now through the supplement process or a 510K. Obviously, it's, you know, every two years you have a new product on the market. So the regulatory environments to address those questions just needs to be different because the life cycle is so different. The, some of the trends, though, that I'm seeing, of course, also, you know, taking the regulations a step farther, the, the shift to, to value on the payment side and on the market access side is one where I think they're starting to converge again. It used to be yeah. that devices were much more transactional in nature around the procedures, um, and drugs had started that, that value discussion as kind of the world in which they, they lived a little, bit, a little bit more. But with the Affordable Care Act, the devices started to come back into that value discussion. And I think that's actually good for devices because instead of when you look at you know, how payers, especially in the U.S., used to look at the, the reimbursement scheme, it would be, are you, am I going to get paid back in three years? And if it was going to take them longer to, to, get re, to get reimbursed for the cost of a device procedure, they might not have gone after it. Right? Neuromodulation is a great example where if they might not necessarily have, they, they might have preferred to just keep on paying for pain medication as opposed to paying more for a neurostimulator that can then reduce that pain, but it's also a lot more expensive procedure. So some of those shifts that are happening now in the device world and drug world are kind of coming back together in that market access space. And it's a similar story that you're starting to see globally for that. And it's one that does have an impact on regulations. You know, what are my claims gonna be? What's my strategy gonna be? What clinical data do I need to show? Not only to the regulators, to the, but to the payers to show the value that I have in my product. And it's, uh, it's an interesting time, right? Especially with the, all the device regulations that are going on in Europe, uh, IVDs you know, are, are coming next from in the European side or in MDR 2020, uh, IVDR 2022. And then the FDA is even making all these changes. They just completely restructured the whole device part of the FDA is now aligned with therapeutic areas from you know, approval through oversight. And there's talk of how do we change the 510K process? So the dynamic nature of the device world, I don't think is gonna go away, right? I think the drug world is probably, is a lot more stable right now from the regulatory side than the mm-hmm. device world is. So it's gonna be important to keep, uh, keep abreast of all those regulatory changes and think about how those regulations you know, impact your product life cycle and your business. How about, um, you know, do you see trends in sort of growing public scrutiny where pharma, you know, big pharma kind of used to be the, the the bad guy. It seems like maybe now it's shifting over a little bit. Med device is getting a little bit of that uh, of that scrutiny as well. Did you yeah. do you see that? And what do you think is driving that? Yeah, I think a lot of that. I mean, I think it's you know a lot of that is driven around of some of the you know the bad. Any space is always going to have bad actors that can some you know that that come up. But at the same time. There are changes that probably needed to be done to improve the safety of devices, especially around you know, the ongoing monitoring and the ability to see these safety trends. So not only is the, you know, a single company might say, okay, well, only one out of 100 of my products is having an issue and you know, we can manage that and we report that. But when all of a sudden that same device class goes to the FDA and all that information is put together, then might present a different picture the way that the safety setup was before in Europe, especially with the notify, the, all the different notified bodies, lack of centralized reporting, the way that the FDA's uh, reporting and disclosures and the, the pace at which that had to happen was letting some of those trends 
you know, slip through or go unnoticed, right? I don't think anyone is in the device world, you know, was, again, in general, right, there's always bad actors out there, want, you know, was having products with issues on the market, but just the way that the safety, the trending and the reporting was set up, really wasn't set up until, until you, you would, it would take a long time for these to be noticed. So I think some of the trends that are going on now on the safety side are so you can see these things right away, right? Udemed, year and a half to adverse events in Europe. Now everything has to go into Udemed right away. Really fast timeline. You can see these trends and it's across the, all of Europe, not just a single notified body. So I think it's, um, you know, the, the reason that they're getting in that attention is because some of these systems need to be changed. The way the products were, you know, so many products being brought to market quickly, right? I mean, there's 2,000 510Ks every year, right? Relative to, you know, 50 drug approvals. <laughs> it's a big difference right. in terms of volume. So they need different environments. And I think the regulatory agencies are making the, the changes and trying out these new models to, to ensure that they work. You don't want to limit access to a new product or a new therapy that can help someone. So you need to make sure that whole ecosystem is in place that still allows innovation, still allows patient access, but still has safety in a way that patients are protected. A quick break here to remind our listeners that MedTech Mindset is a production of Archimedic a full-service medical device developer helping innovators struggling with technical, commercial, regulatory, and manufacturing challenges accelerate their new products along the path to market. Our clients span established device manufacturers, top-tier academic hospitals, and venture-backed startups. Learn more at Archimedic.com. So is that why Viva is turning its attention to, um, to the device world because of the increased expectation that you will collect and manage and, and analyze your data as part of your product development life cycle? Well, I think part of it is just where Viva is as a company, right? Viva is only 12 years old, right? We're not, <laughs> we're still a, uh, a startup in, in a lot of ways and focus really does pay off. So focusing on the pharma business and really establishing themselves in that space, you know, was the right cause. So they could, you know, learn the product, really get deep into an industry, you know, and support it. So the now I think the time for beginning to focus on devices, you know, made sense. There, there's a lot of maturity that, you know, Viva has in the pharma world. You know, we're the leading ETMF provider now in the clinical space, for example. Still a lot more work to do, a lot more innovation to be done. But, you know, so I think that's one, right, just where Viva, you know, was as a company. In addition, the MDR changes that were going on has awoken a lot of device professionals and a lot of device companies in how they need to look at they're managing their business and bringing their products to market. So for example, the pace of innovation at device companies was so high, they really just focused on that, right? Oh, if there's a regulatory change, I'll just hire more regulatory people to keep on doing things the same way. So I, don't have, I, have to, I have this two-year launch window. I can't deal with a whole business transformation. I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing, right? So that's my focus. MDR has really, I think, brought to light in particular, uh, as well as other, other changes, but MDR in particular has brought to light to a lot of companies that the old way of doing things doesn't work and they need to think differently about how they're bringing their products to market, how they're managing the life cycle, how they're managing, how they run their, their business and what they're doing with their, with their data. Can you maybe expound a little bit? I think, you know, you, you kind of alluded to um, that, you know, one of the reasons you're excited by joining, you know, the Viva team and, and by Viva's expansion into, into the device world is because you see, Mm -hmm. You see ways in which it can shorten the product development lifecycle and really, um, you know, really help spur innovation at, at uh, right. device development companies. Can you expound on that a little bit for, yeah, for our audience who maybe have had fewer conversations in the past with you? Than, no, that's, that's a good, that's a good question. Eric or I have. 
So, you know, I think that the first one or the easiest one is really just visibility. You know, is understanding the visibility to what's going on across your company and the ability to collaborate across the, the these different historically silos, right? So as I was playing it when I was at NAMSA, it was a lot of what I started to get interested in was how do we break down these traditional barriers between quality, regulatory, clinical, and market access. So you know and can understand in one room what, you know, you don't need to run multiple clinical trials to address all these different stakeholders. How do I design one study so the patients can understand the benefit to them, the payers understand the value, the regulators understand the safety and efficacy. But to do that, you need to have a lot of visibility and collaboration across your organization and having a cloud-based system that everyone can have access to anywhere in the world and see what they need to see at the right time is, you know, while it sounds simple, is very complicated and is also extremely powerful for an organization. It allows them to unify a lot of their processes across their, whether it's in a specific therapeutic area. So device companies, therapeutic areas have a lot of differences in how the product life cycle. So that might be the level at which unification makes sense, or it might be at the corporate level, um, or it could be, you know, or, or something in between, a mix of the two. And the other big piece, and this comes talks to MDR in particular, is really about, am I audit ready, right? What's my audit trail for my whole business process, not only on regulated documents, right, that I'm gonna submit as part of my review for my device, but just how I'm running my business, my sales and marketing material, all those changes, how can I be audited at any time and show that value? Um, you show, excuse me, show that trail to an auditor, right? You're seeing changes not only from the FDA, but now notified bodies are doing surprise inspections just like the FDA used to, or still does. The requirements to really be audit ready at all times, as opposed to kind of catching up, right, when an audit starts is, is, is hugely beneficial. So again, these are some of just the key things that folks that companies are starting to think about in the device world for all the reasons we've talked about, that again, Viva really fits nicely into, it's, it's what we're focused on. And even you know, three years ago, I don't think device companies were quite ready for this, right? Or ready to look at, at their businesses like this, and we're just more focused on the, the current you know, paradigm. It's a good time to be a regulatory professional because there's not enough of them, right? So you can't find them. Right. Uh, there's not enough regulatory folks, you know, their, their salaries are going up. You're a big company, you know, you can't hire enough regulatory people with all these changes going on. So you need to look a little bit differently and what, what we're doing. And you really just don't, and at the end of the day, you don't want innovation to suffer because your business processes or the technology you're using aren't up to the task. So let me ask you, you know, we have folks from companies of all different sizes listen to, listen to this podcast. Um, Traditionally, I've thought of Viva as kind of a solution for only for the for the big kids. You know, in the med tech world, a lot of innovation, as you know, happens at startups, uh, you know, small, mid-sized companies. And then, you know, with the goal of de-risking it to the point where, you know, one of the big players is going to purchase them. Is it is it too small minded for those companies to be thinking, well, we're going to worry about, you know, managing all this data, you know, in the cloud later? You know, are there are there ways that smaller companies could could benefit from from Viva or you know a cloud based way of yeah. of managing their their data? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, the the great thing about you know, so Viva is a multi tenant you know cloud provider. So what that means, you know, the analogy I like to use is you think of the Viva skyscraper, right? So we're it has the same building, it's the same plumbing, right? It has the same roof, but every company has their own apartments, right? That has their own data. Right. So what that means for a small company is if you, whether you have you know, 20 users, 50 users, or 
50,000 users like some of our customers do, you're getting the same technology, right? So it's extremely powerful for small companies. And in a lot of ways, there's probably more, you know, there's a lot of benefit for small companies. I don't want to necessarily say more than big. It's just different, right? The benefit that they get is, you know, is they're making their, their staff, they can't go out and hire 20 new regulatory people if there's a regulatory change, right? They need to do what they can with the staff they have, manage their burn rate, make sure that they're collaborating across their company because they really can't make mistakes. These big companies can absorb, you know, miss, you know, if something doesn't quite, you know, hit a timeline, they can absorb some of that. A small company, a couple months might be all you have in cash flow. Right. So sure. looking at and thinking about data flow at at a small company, mid, especially and definitely mid-sized companies, is something I think everyone should be should be doing. How am I bringing my? Because it really answers that core question. How am I bringing my product to market? How am I managing that life cycle? How am I sharing information with all the key people who need to do it? In addition, one of the other advantages too for small companies is they're probably having a lot of external partners. But this makes sure they control their data, and it's not sitting on one CROs here, a product development company here, a regulatory consultant over there. They know where all their data is at one time, and all the all the data and documents are still together in one place. It's unified, and it, they can still connect with all those different those different partners. So it's you know, Viva's a big company. We work with a lot of big pharma. We work with a lot of small medical device companies too, and you know, a lot of them are. Not very big, right? They have 25 employees, right? 50 employees. They're, you know, they're not all the Medtronics of, of the world, right? <laughs> they have, you know, I don't even know how many, they have 70,000 employees around the world. So it's, uh, it, it's something I think anyone should be, should be thinking about, uh, no matter where they, they are in their, in their path to, to market. So when would you say is, you know, well, you just kind of said no matter where they are, but, um, you know, when would you say is time to get serious about um, moving from a paper-based to a to an electronic uh, or to a cloud-based like quality system, for instance. Yeah, um, I think and, um, you know who should be the first actors, you know, at at a device develop, you know, at a device startup or or you know pre-revenue device company to be doing that. Well, it really depends on it. Probably depends on the product and and what you know the the barriers are. So, for example, if um, if you're going to be building a a pretty complex you know device potentially a lot of different suppliers, you know, need to manage that flow with those SOPs, a lot of different contract manufacturers, right? That might make a lot of sense, even if you don't necessarily have to do clinical trials. If you're a, a really innovative product, first in human, first in man, you're expecting a lot of clinical data, right, to be coming in, potentially using CROs around the world, that clinical might be your, your, your first step. So there's not necessarily a great you know, it's but probably one of those two. It's probably gonna be it's probably gonna be a situational, right? Yeah, it's probably gonna it's, it's probably gonna be a quality you know opportunity or, or a, you know an opportunity for a company to go in and look at a qual you know a document or even just document management even before QMS. Where am I just managing my documents? It might just be a doc management perspective, not even yeah. a full QMS functionality yet, or you know, and or a, a clinical opportunity because I know, you know, this is my first human, maybe I can get through with my first, you know, 10 patients, you know, on, on paper with this small CRO, but now I know that I'm going to be going to Europe for this, for this study, I'm going to be running this study in the U.S., and they, I want to control my data, I want to know where it is, I want to be audit ready, and, I, and those are also things you might be looking to internalize over time, right, so you don't want to have to go and figure out where is all this information when I'm pulling it back from a CRO and I'm building out my own clinical staff. So I would say it's typically probably one of one of those two, uh, depending on you know depending on the situation. 
So um, let me shift the conversation a little bit and ask you about something that I've seen you kind of be very active in um, in talking about on LinkedIn and, and in other places. Uh, and that's real, re I always struggle with this, real world evidence. Mm -hmm. um, how can, um, you know, are there ways in which, you know, managing your managing your data in a cloud system can inform, you know, that initiative, but, you know, if, if the industry moves in that direction, what is it that got, that's got you specifically talking about, uh, about, I'm just going to call it RWE because I'll stumble again. Yeah. Um, and what, what excites you about it and how does it kind of tie into uh, to what you're doing there on a day-to-day basis? -day? Yeah. So, I mean, real world evidence is something that's really interesting, right? Because you're, the regulatory changes are requiring a collection of a lot more clinical data by companies, you know, for, for safety, and or for showing uh, the value as part of your market access to can show payers the value that your product has in the real world. But it's easy to say, right, real, well, sometimes easy to say real world evidence, but the, the challenge of how do I collect this data in a way that's auditable? How do I collect this data in a way that I can clean it up, share it with regulatory authorities, potentially expand my regulatory claims, which is if you look at the FDA guidance on real world evidence is one of the things that they, that they talk about, becomes very you know, problematic, right? It's great in theory, it's one of those things that's great in theory, but in practice becomes very complicated. And it's something right. that uh, cloud systems in particular are just really good at collecting data from all these different sources, organizing it, and then disseminating it back out to the folks that need, that, that need it. So it's something that one is, is something that's, that right now is looked at as a little bit as a cost center in device companies a lot. Right now I have to do more trials, I have to collect more data, but in reality also has a lot of value. So bringing this together and figuring out the, the solution to this, how do I take this something that, you know, it's, you know, it's costing me money to do it, it's cost to the system, but have I collected that in a way to help me with my regulatory story, help me with my, my payment story is one that a lot of companies you know, need to think about. And I think we'll eventually, once we, I don't think the answer isn't out there yet, right? Um, I actually have a, a panel at the MedTech conference this year on this topic with uh, Owen Ferris, who wrote the, was one of the leaders of this guidance and is the director of clinical trials at the FDA. Uh, MDIC, who's a, a, a consortium on this, is also gonna be on the panel as well as industry. So we'll be talking about some of this because it's had a lot of discussion in the last couple of years. Companies are, are starting to do it and start to generate that data but there's still a lot of unanswered questions and yeah, it's a good problem. And I, I, I like, uh, I like being part of the, the dialogue and trying to help figure, figure this out and look into the details of what it really needs to be and what the solution could be for, uh, for the industry. Thanks for bringing that up. I meant to, to plug that session. Um, if any of our listeners are going to be there uh, in Boston at the AdvaMed MedTech conference uh, end of September, um, Seth will be there uh, leading a session, and uh, Archimedic will be there too. So come come by and meet us. We'd we'd love to uh, we'd love to talk to you there about this and, and other other related things. So um, Seth, I know that uh, you know I may be the last thing standing between you and uh, and your weekend and time with your family. So I, I appreciate you spending the time here. Um, got one more question for you before I let you go. Um, just about uh, MDR and. And it's it's impacting. You you you've touched upon it a couple couple times here, but you know, people are really struggling to prepare for MDR uh, mm -hmm. by these upcoming deadlines. I see a lot of uh, chatter about it in uh, in LinkedIn groups, and um, and I, I hear some anxiety from uh, from uh, from people in the industry. How do you see it impacting kind of med tech innovators? And and if it's 
if we're talking about, you know, a pre-revenue stage company who maybe thinks, well, Europe is our, you know, our beachhead is in the U.S. and Europe is is the next step, you know, what do they need to be thinking about when it comes to uh, to MDR? Yeah, so, you know, so I'll talk about MDR in general, right? We, and then I'll, I'll dive into what it means for big companies as well as, well as startups, you know, so the MDR is part of that change in safety, part of that change in improvement that, that I think needs to be done. Coming out in you know 2020, there's a lot of shifts going on. Obviously, people are talking about the notified bodies and you know how many notified bodies are there going to be. And these are these are real issues, right? You look at it. Um, so I won't repeat all that. That that's all out there. But when you look at it, you know what does it mean to impact and how does it impact your business? It really comes down to auditability of my data and can I track all of the data that is in my that I've used to run my business. Is, that's really what it is at the core. Again, very simple to say in one word, but in reality, how do I actually do that? And it's one that um, you know, we, we're focusing on a lot here at Viva, one that I think we're poised to really help because you're talking about how do I take this, you know, my regulatory data, how do I take this clinical data, whether it's for a clinical trial or post-market data that I get in the field, how do I integrate that into my you know, clinical evaluation reports that now need to be updated more, more frequently? It's really the whole business, right? And that's why I think people are, are really kind of starting to panic because they thought it was, well, I think a lot of folks were focusing just on, on one piece of the quality. And then they realized they really need to think about how they're managing their quality differently. Because now quality has expanded from my manufacturing space. And now I need to take those core principles of documentation and auditability and expand them across my business. And that is some of the impetus and, and stimulus that has caused a lot of device companies to start looking at solutions such as Viva. It's also, as I mentioned, a big part of why I think now for Viva to start entering this space next, uh, we've been here for a while, we have 80 customers already, but expand our presence in this space and put more focus on the products and solutions for device companies just makes a lot of sense. Because unless you're really thinking about a transformation and really changing about the way you run your whole business, you're, you know, you're at risk, right? You're at risk from bad audits, right? You're, which then cost a ton of money, right? You're at risk of being non, non-compliant. And those are things that, you know, you, again, don't want to be doing. You want to be focusing on innovation and, and bringing uh, products to, to your, your patients. So it's, uh, I think also a lot of people thought MDR might not happen, right? Or it's going to get delayed, but it, right. it's happening. Yep. You're not pushing it back, <laughs> not getting delayed, right? Everyone's like, keeps on saying it's, but the, the mission is pretty clear. It's happening. So I think that's also leading to a little bit of the, the panic. Everyone's like, oh, you know, we have more time. You know, we're not ready. People aren't ready and it's happening. So the, all of that together um, is why I think, you know, being MDR ready or, or thinking about MDR has had such a big impact. It, it impacts all of your documentation, all of your product development process, processes. You have to document all of your distribution channels, right? With, you know, UDI compliance, you know, what am I doing around the world? Can I track my product, all my sales and marketing material? Everything is impacted by MDR. When you look at the impact of small businesses versus large businesses, large businesses are definitely impacted more because of the number of products they have on the marketplace. And a lot of it is actually sales and sales and marketing requirements and distribution are the big challenges right. for the big companies, right? The small companies are, are less impacted today, right? I would say in general, because you know, they don't have that, the distribution and the sales and marketing piece to worry about. The product development process is more similar in the documentation around product development and the needs for MDR. While there are more to bring your products to market, right? you might have to have more clinical data, your CRs have to be more in depth. Those are, I would say, incremental you know, 
ads on the, you know, the pre-approval process, whereas the sales and marketing, the distribution tracking is, is you know, exponential increase of over, over what had to be done before. So big companies are definitely impacted more than, you know, a small, a small startup, a small startup or a small innovator. They need, they need to be aware of those things. The, the bigger challenge actually for the small company, while they, they might have a, a similar regulatory path or the regulatory requirements might be the same, again, maybe a little more clinical data, better CER, the bigger issue for them is going to be, you know, is there a notified body that, that will take me on as a client, right? So I think that's actually going to drive a lot of folks to look more U.S. Right. first just because the notified body bandwidth for small companies is really going to be right. tight. Yeah, I understand a lot of notified bodies are kind of pulling back um, based on based on MDR requirements. So, Correct. Yeah, there's a, a couple who have decided not to be in that business anymore, right? Um, you know, I, I think we'll get up into, you know, 10, 20. You know, I think there's a lot of folks that are notified bodies who have their uh, applications in review. You know, we have two approved already. Uh, but some are just, you know, but, you know, at the same time, that also might be a, an indicator of, you know, what the quality of that notified body potentially, right? You know, were, were their systems already prepared for something like this to support that additional, you know, approach or documentation? You know, the big companies, I, I think, you know, might have, had, have probably had more, again, I'm just hypothesizing here, right? It might have had a more aggressive infrastructure and those things in place. So those, this transition, it was potentially not, not that it was easy, but a little bit easier. Uh, because the cost to get compliant was, you know, I think very expensive for the notified bodies too. They had to absorb a lot, absorb a lot of costs, train their staff, look at additional staff that they need to hire to, to do these reviews. Uh, it, there's a lot, it was a lot of work for the notified bodies as well. It wasn't just uh, you know, filling out paperwork. They really had to transform what they were doing and, and, and managing their businesses too. All right. Well, Seth, thank you so much for, uh, for making time for us on, uh, on a, a Friday afternoon in the summer. I think a lot of our colleagues are out on vacation and enjoying uh, enjoying time at the beach. So thanks for making time to talk to us. Um, it's my and, pleasure. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully and, they can uh, listen to the podcast on the beach somewhere. You know, give them something to think about when they get back in the office. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure, that's good. whatever. Uh, sure, that's everyone's top priority. Listening. To uh, exactly. Yeah. On the beach. Yeah, but this was fun. I appreciate your time, and um, that was a good good discussion. And hope we can uh, do it again sometime. That's our show for today. If you liked it, or if you didn't. Please visit Archimedic.com and submit a contact us form to tell us why. Please also let us know if there's a topic or a guest you think we should cover in an upcoming episode. Mentech Mindset is a production of Archimedic and is produced in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed, performed, and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. Thanks again to Seth Goldenberg for being our guest and to our friends at Viva Systems. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Medtech Mindset.